Chapter 13, Part 3 of History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by Samuel Cheatham. Chapter 13, Part 3 Ecclesiastical Ceremonies and Art. Socrates, the historian, noticing the diversity of practice in different regions with regard to the observance of the paschal festival, points out that the observance of special days and months and years had no scriptural authority. The Mosaic law had, he says, no direct bearing upon the Christian church, and the ceremonies and observances which he saw in actual use had arisen, for the most part, simply from local use and want. The cycle of festivals satisfied a craving of human nature, as for the apostles, they did not aim at giving rules for feast days, but at promoting piety and righteousness. This is true. The end of the observance of special days and hours is the maintaining and raising of the spiritual life of the church. But in time, festivals and fasts of universal observance acquire a sacredness which few dispute. The Lord's Day and the Stations of Wednesday and Friday were already observed before the end of the third century. Constantine is said to have closed the law courts and forbidden labor on the Friday as well as on the Sunday, the Wednesday being probably always a day less strictly observed. Socrates notes, as a primeval custom of the Alexandrians, that on the Wednesday and Friday the scriptures are read and expositions given in the churches, that, in short, everything belonging to the solemn assembly is done, except the actual celebration. Everywhere, in the early part of the 5th century, there was a celebration of the Holy Eucharist on the Sabbath, that is, Saturday, excepting at Alexandria and Rome, where a local custom forbade it. While in the parts of Egypt bordering on Alexandria, and in Thebaid, the inhabitants had a custom on that day differing from that of the rest of Christendom. They partook of the Eucharist in the evening after a sumptuous repast. In the West, however, and particularly at Rome, Saturday became a fast day, and had no celebration of the Eucharist. Four times in the year, once in each of the four seasons of the year, three days of the week, our ember days, were observed with special solemnity. This custom appears to be peculiar to the Roman Patriarchate, and not to be older than the 5th century. The disputes as to the proper time of celebrating Easter still continued in the period with which we are now concerned. At the Council of Nicaea, it was agreed that all the churches should conform to the use which was observed in Egypt, Africa, Italy, and the West generally. It is not clear that the Council laid down any rule for the determination of Easter Day. Certainly, it did not put an end to the controversy. The quarto deciman practice still required to be repressed at the time of the Council of Constantinople in the year 381, and indeed did not die out until the 6th century. Even Rome and Alexandria often celebrated their Easter on a different day. This difference arose partly from the fact that the two churches used different cycles for the computation of the day of the paschal full moon partly from the Romans, holding that Easter day must never fall earlier than the sixteenth day of the paschal moon, while the Alexandrians allowed it to be celebrated on the fifteenth, 
and the Roman tradition did not allow Easter Day to fall later than April 21st, while Alexandrian custom extended the paschal limit to the 25th. The Britons observed Easter Sunday so early as the 14th day of the paschal moon, if it so fell according to their antiquated cycle, a practice which became a point of difference between them and the Roman missionaries under Augustine. An important step towards uniformity was made when Victorious of Aquitaine, about A.D. 457, composed a new cycle combining the Alexandrian lunar cycle of 19 years with the solar cycle of 28 years, thus forming the Victorian period of 532 years. Still, discrepancies occurred until the matter was finally set at rest by the Roman abbot Dionysius Exiguus, the same who introduced the era Anno Domini into chronology. He employed the Victorian period in the Easter table, which he constructed, and in fact seems to have done little more than adapt the Victorian calculations to his own era of the Nativity. The table of Dionysius was received almost universally in the East and West, and from this time we have little controversy about the date of Easter Day, except where, as in Britain, the Roman missionaries found a church standing on older ways than their own. The forty days preceding Easter are mentioned as days of special observance from the fourth century, and are regarded as the time for preparing candidates for baptism, penitents for absolution, and the faithful generally for joining worthily into the Paschal festival. One of the observances of such a season was naturally fasting, but the nature and extent of this varied considerably in different places. The extension of the Lenten fast in the Alexandrian Patriarchate may be traced in the festal letters of Athanasius from the year 329 to 347. At the earliest date, he speaks of the season of the forty days and the week of fasting. At the latest, of the forty days fast and the holy week before Easter. At Rome, only three weeks before Easter were at this time observed by fasting, and even in these, the Sabbath and the Lord's Day were not fasts, in the Church of Antioch and its dependencies, the forty days seem to have been distinguished from Holy Week, while at Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Rome, Holy Week was included in them. Towards the middle of the fifth century, the churches generally agreed in observing specially the six weeks preceding Easter. Deducting Sundays, this period included only thirty-six days of actual fasting, a circumstance which led to the addition to the Lent fast of the four days preceding the first Sunday in Lent. This addition was, however, not made in Rome, at least, until the time of Gregory the Great. The week which immediately precedes Easter Day, the emphatically Holy Week, was specially observed from a very early period. The term Palm Sunday does not seem to be applied to the Lord's Day which begins this week by any earlier authority than Isidore of Seville in the early part of the 7th century. On the Thursday of this week, our Monday Thursday, the institution of the Holy Eucharist was specially commemorated, and in some churches the faithful communicated on this day after taking their evening meal, a reminiscence of the circumstances of the original institution. Good Friday, the day on which the Lord's crucifixion was commemorated was a day for the strictest fasting and for every display of sadness and mourning, 
on this day there was no Eucharist. At Jerusalem the true cross was exposed to the faithful, who on this day alone were permitted to approach and kiss it. On Easter Eve the joy of the approaching festival began to appear. Troops of neophytes were buried with Christ in baptism. The numbers of the faithful passed the night in the churches waiting for his resurrection. Abundant lamps were lighted, and in some places fires were kindled. The introduction of the blessing of the paschal taper is attributed to Pope Zosimus, early in the 5th century. The day of the resurrection itself was celebrated with every sign of joy and exaltation, which was prolonged in some degree to the Feast of Pentecost. From the middle of the 4th century, the 40th day after Easter, Holy Thursday, was observed as a commemoration of the Lord's ascension. In the East, the manifestation of the Lord, both at his birth and at his baptism, was celebrated on the 6th of January in the 4th century, while at the same period in Rome and its dependencies, the 25th of December was observed as the day of Christ's nativity. But the festival of January 6th seems to have been then unknown there. In the 5th century, the observance of the 25th of December as the nativity had spread into the East, and that of the 6th of January as the epiphany, the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles and also his baptism, had extended into the West, so that both festivals were observed by almost the whole church. The first mention of the epiphany in the West appears to be in the year 360, when Julian, not yet a declared pagan, attended the church services on that day at Vienne in Gaul. Forty days after the commemoration of the Lord's Nativity followed that of his presentation in the temple. On the octave of the Nativity was commemorated his circumcision, when the name Jesus was given. The 25th of December was probably chosen for the commemoration of Christ's birth, because it was, according to the Roman calendar then current, the winter solstice the day on which the sun, as it were newborn, turns again towards us, was thought a fitting epoch to commemorate the advent of the Son of Righteousness. From an early age, commemorations of the principal saints mentioned in Scripture came to have special days assigned to them. A commemoration of the Holy Virgin seems to have been associated with that of the Lord's birth. Rome does not seem to have adopted any festival in honor of the Virgin before the 7th century. St. Stephen, St. Peter, St. James, St. John, and St. Paul were, at any rate, in some churches, commemorated between Christmas and New Year's Day. And not only these, but the other apostles came, as might be expected, to receive special commemorations in every land which the sound of their voices had reached. But besides the scriptural saints, a crowd of names of martyrs and others who had served Christ in their generation came to be held in great honor and venerated with special service on special days. When, after struggle and persecution, the flock of Christ obtained rest, it was natural that they should look back with love and veneration to the heroes of the faith who had fallen in the great fight. From the first, martyrs and confessors had been held in reverence, Devout men carried them to their burial and commemorated their death days. But in time of calm, those who had braved the storm came to be even more honored. The belief arose 
that by making our requests known to the martyrs who enjoy the presence of the deity we might the better make them known unto god we can put no bonds said jerome on the apostles they who follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth are of course present wherever he is gregory of nazianzus praised the martyr whom he is eulogizing to look down from above upon his people and to join in the pastoral care of the flock sulpicius severus grieving for the loss of saint martin comforts himself and his friend aurelius with the thought that the departed will be present with them as they speak of him and stand over them as they pray that he will give them glimpses of his glory and guard them with his perpetual benediction st basil regards the local martyrs as guarding the country from the onslaughts of enemies though their power is not limited to the defence of one region only he that is in tribulation he says has recourse to the martyrs and he that is in wealth runs to them no less the one to seek help in his misfortunes the other that his prosperity may be continued the pious mother praying for her children the wife supplicating for the return of her absent husband or the recovery of the sick these trust that their prayers may be granted by the aid of the martyrs martyrs cooperate with our prayers and are our most powerful ambassadors and the poets as might perhaps be expected go even beyond the orators in the influence which they ascribe to the saints in glory up to the fifth century prayers were made in the liturgy for saints and martyrs as well as for others who have departed in the faith of christ we make our commemoration says epiphanius quote, both for the righteous and for sinners for sinners beseeching god to have mercy upon them for the righteous fathers and patriarchs prophets apostles and evangelists martyrs and confessors bishops and anchorites and the whole order of saints that we may distinguish the lord jesus christ from those who are ranked merely as men remembering that the lord is not to be placed on an equality with any man to this correspond the intercessions in the liturgy of the apostolic constitutions and in some of the nestorian liturgies which probably in this respect retain the form which they had before the schism on the other hand in the liturgy described by cyril of jerusalem in that which bears the name of st james and generally in the later liturgies commemoration is made of the virgin mary and of the saints quote, in order that by their prayers and intercessions we may obtain mercy it would be a wrong says st augustine to pray for the martyrs whose intercession we seek the names whether of those saints whose intercession was asked or of those for whom the church on earth interceded were in ancient times read at the altar from folding tablets called diptychs Quote, the authority by which a name was inserted in the list was until at least the tenth century that of the bishop with no doubt the consent of the clergy and people and as time went on of the synod and metropolitan further it came to be thought that prayers offered on the very spot where the body of a saint rested were of greater efficacy than those offered elsewhere the possession of their bones was a kind of pledge that they would regard the place where they lay and would watch over the lives of those who dwelt there reverence is to be paid to all martyrs but most of all to those whose relics are with us 
all help us by their prayers and their passion says a writer of the fifth century but with our own saints we have a kind of intimacy they abide with us they watch over us while we are in the body they receive us when we quit it when nearness to the remains of the saints was so much desired it is not wonderful that it was desired to preserve them in egypt where the dead had been embalmed from time immemorial the custom sprang up of making mummies of the bodies of famous saints especially of martyrs paying them the funeral honours due and then laying them on couches in their own dwellings st anthony was shocked at this practice thinking it right that the bodies of the departed should be laid in tombs as those of the patriarchs of the lord himself had been but even where no embalming was attempted the body of one who had suffered martyrdom or had been distinguished for saintliness of life was regarded as a precious possession the first to move the bodies of the saintly dead was the emperor constantine who to give his new city something of the sanctity which old rome derived from the remains of saint peter and saint paul brought over to constantinople the holy relics of andrew luke and timothy at a later date such translations were expressly forbidden by a law of theodosius the same law forbids the sale of the holy bodies a practice which had arisen in the later part of the fourth century there were even serious conflicts with considerable bloodshed for the possession of the corpses of those who were regarded as martyrs unexpected discoveries of the bodies of saints were also not uncommon theodoret describes the flocking of the faithful to the magnificent tombs of the martyrs which were everywhere to be found it was not once or twice a year that they were solemnly visited many times annually high festival was held there many times a day were hymns sung there to the lord there the healthy prayed for the preservation of their health the sick for recovery the childless for offspring they who contemplated a journey prayed the martyrs to be their guides and companions those who had returned offered thanks which were due not that they approached them as gods but that they supplicated them as godlike men and besought them to become their intercessors and that they obtained what they sought was manifested by the votive offerings which showed what cures had been effected for men offered representations in gold or silver of eyes or feet or hands to commemorate their healing it was not to be wondered at if the heathen now retorted on the christians the reproaches which the latter had formerly made against them of building splendid temples over dead men's bones but far above all other saints was the mother of the lord honoured we have already seen that the application of the epithet mother of god to the virgin had been a main cause of nestorianism but it was not merely the disputes on the incarnation that give exceeding dignity to her who was so highly favoured the ever-increasing reverence for virginity the feeling that a woman was more ready sympathy than a man and that a mother must be powerful with her son such considerations as these led men to attach greater efficacy to the intercession of the virgin than to that of other saints as christ was the mediator between god and man so she came to be regarded as the mediator between man and christ it has been said with some degree of truth that almost everything which the arians had said of christ was said of the virgin in the fifth century she also like the christ of the arians was divine though not one with god the father it came to be believed 
that St. Mary remained a virgin even after the birth of her divine son, a theory which earlier ages would probably have rejected as favoring the docetic notion that the Lord's body was not composed of solid flesh. Tertullian, in fact an ardent opponent of Gnosticism in all its forms, very evidently regards her as having undergone the lot of all mothers in the birth of her son, and for this he does not appear to have been blamed. And even Basil the Great in the fourth century admits that the perpetual virginity is no necessary article of Christian faith, though, he says, lovers of Christ cannot endure to hear that the mother of God ever ceased to be a virgin. A strange kind of worship was paid to the virgin in the middle of the fourth century in Arabia. There, certain women who came from Thrace paid her divine honors by offering to her cakes, as renegade Jewesses had formerly done to Astarte, the queen of heaven. It was probably such extravagance as this which led certain teachers, also in Arabia, whom Epiphanius nicknamed Antidisomarianites, to maintain an opinion which was offensive to the church at large, that St. Mary, after bringing forth her firstborn son, bore children to Joseph, and about the year 380, Helvidius, who lived in Rome, published a treatise in which he maintained that the Lord's brethren were the sons of Joseph and Mary, and must have found adherents, for the Helvidians are spoken of as a sect or party. Similar views were maintained about the same time by Bonasus, bishop of Sardica, and by Jovinian, who has already been mentioned as denying the special merit of virginity. The latter was condemned by synods held at Rome and at Milan about the year 390, and the former by one assembled at Capua in 392. That divine messengers, angels, both do God's service in heaven and succor men on earth, has been a pious belief of Christians in all ages of the church. They were not, however, invoked in the same way as sainted men. There seemed a danger, lest Christians should lose the prize of their calling by worshipping of angels, and the angels themselves refused adoration when offered. Some kind of supplication was nevertheless addressed to them, as the guardians of frail humanity, and it seems that in the fourth century, churches were dedicated in the names of angels, which were especially visited by votaries, who believed that supplications offered there would be most effectual. When annual commemorations became numerous, it was necessary to draw up lists of them in order to their proper observance. Of such calendars, or hertologia, the earliest which remain to us are the two published by Bacurius, and often known by his name. Of these, the first contains a record of the burial days of the Roman bishops, from Lucius in A.D. 253 to Julius I in A.D. 352. The second, the burial days of the martyrs of the Roman Church. This latter, De Rossi, takes to be a complete account of all the immovable festivals observed in the Church of Rome at the time when the list was drawn up, i.e., in the fourth century. They amount to twenty-four. There is also extant a calendar of the Carthaginian Church, which appears to be of the fifth or sixth century. There were no doubt similar documents everywhere, which have not come down to us, containing the names of local saints and festivals, in addition to those which were observed throughout the church. Some of the defenders of Christianity frankly pointed to the long array of saints' days in the Christian calendar 
as the equivalents of the old pagan holidays. Our Lord, says Theodoret to the heathen, quote, has given us our own dead as substitutes for your gods. These he has brought to nothing, to those he has allotted their honors. Instead of the Pandia, the Diasia, the Dionysia, and the rest of your holidays, there are celebrated public feasts of Peter and Paul and Thomas and Sergius and our other martyrs. Chrysostom pointed out that the spirit of the several festivals should animate our whole life, not special days only. Quote, we keep a particular day, the Epiphany, in memory of the Lord's manifestation upon earth, but he should be manifest to us every day. We keep our Paschal festival in memory of the Lord's death and resurrection, but whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we show forth the Lord's death. We keep our Pentecost in memory of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but we hope to have Christ always present with us through the Spirit. Very nearly connected with the reverence paid to the bodies of saints is the sacredness attributed to the places where they had lived and moved, especially to those which had been pressed by the feet of the Son of God. The Empress Helena set the example of pilgrimage to Palestine, for the sake of visiting the holy places where the Lord had been born, died, and risen again. Churches were built over the spots where the Lord was born and where he was laid in the tomb. It was even believed that the actual cross upon which the Lord had suffered had been found buried in the earth. From this time, pilgrimages became frequent. Religious zeal longed to see the very places where the Lord had walked and suffered, whence he had risen and ascended into heaven. Happy was the man who possessed a little dust from these places, or a splinter from the wood of the very cross itself, which suffered no diminution, though fragments were daily taken from it. The only person from whom these fragments could be obtained was the Bishop of Jerusalem, a circumstance which no doubt increased the number of pilgrims to the holy city. Many also came to Palestine in hopes of being baptized in the Jordan, which Constantine himself proposed, but was unable to accomplish. End of chapter 13, part 3